Welcome to the Popecast, episode 10. This week, it's the only guy out of the first 49 popes to not be declared a saint, like the first in 350 years, and the only one for the first 500 years. He got accused of heresy and is now one of three popes in particular used by many outside Catholicism as an example of why papal infallibility is bunk. At number 36, it's Pope Liberius. Hey there, I'm Matthew Sewell, and this is the podcast about popes for people who love learning about history but aren't real excited about reading a dry, dusty history book. Each episode, we feature one of the 264 bishops of Rome, telling stories of good and bad popes alike, all in an effort to draw out the importance of the papacy, the gravity of the office of Peter, and the inestimable value that the Catholic Church has brought to Western civilization. This particular episode is the first installment in the Popecast's Infallibility series, a three-episode look into the three popes most often blamed by critics of Catholicism for why papal infallibility is a false doctrine. Are they right? Are they not? Well, we'll explore the three main figures, Liberius, Vigilius, and Honorius I, and find out, starting with Liberius. The first time history finds this pope is after he'd succeeded St. Julius I. On May 17th, 352 AD, there was a lot of drama going on in those days, as listeners to episode 8 of the Popecast will remember. Liberius was succeeded by St. Damasus I in 366, with the Arian controversy in full force. Arianism, for those wondering, was a heretical belief that grew during the 4th century that Christ was a mere man. At its peak, it claimed nearly two-thirds of the world's bishops and had an entire ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea, in 325, devoted to squashing it out and clarifying the proper truth about the nature of Christ. Arius, the bishop who started the movement and after whom the heresy was named, was in attendance at that council, and legend has it that it was there that St. Nicholas punched Arius in the face for being such a dunce. But I digress. Nicaea, even though it did proclaim the truth about Christ's divinity, still wasn't able to put an immediate kibosh on the heresy being so widespread. I had a bishop explain to me once that a council of the whole church was kind of like having to wait three to five days after major surgery to have the biggie-sized fry from McDonald's. It was a fitting analogy since uh, this bishop was a rather large man himself. But for the full effect of a council to set in, since in a sense a council does surgery on a body made up of such a large swath of people, it takes 30 to 50 years. In any case, the church was still in that ballpark, and Arianism's primary champion was Constantius, the Roman emperor. So when Liberius came on the scene, Constantius had been occupying his time, waging war on those bishops still clinging to orthodoxy, the true belief, focusing his sights on the great Saint Athanasius in particular. Athanasius, then the patriarch of Alexandria in the east, had been condemned by the emperor for not falling in line, but Julius I had acquitted his brother bishop, and Liberius did the same as soon as he arrived in office. And so began an intricate chess match between pope and emperor, a game that would continue through Constantius's death in 361. Constantius was armed with a short temper and a desperate thirst for power. Liberius was armed with the decrees of the Council of Nicaea, which were, and by the way, still are today the measure of orthodox belief, and a church protected by the Holy Spirit, to boot. I'll take tyrants who never stood a chance for 1,000, Alex. For the first five years of Liberius's papacy, 
Constantius made a habit of exiling anyone who got in his way. Athanasius, a handful of other bishops, and various other churchmen were banished at various points and places for holding fast to orthodoxy. Liberius had a letter sent to the exiles addressing them as martyrs and expressing his own regret and sadness that he had not been the first to suffer. He also asked for their prayers that he might yet be worthy to share in that exile. Interestingly enough, Liberius had that bitter wish granted before long. Constantius, of course, wanted everyone to bow to his version of right belief, and having the Roman pontiff submit to his will was the crown jewel of his efforts, as you might imagine. As a result, Constantius threw everything he could to convince Liberius to condemn Athanasius and assent to heresy. He started first by sending large bribes to Liberius by way of the eunuch Eusebius, a prefect in Constantius's court. Liberius drove the eunuch away, shouting, and when the eunuch left the bribes in St. Peter's Basilica, Liberius scolded the guardians of the holy place for letting such an abomination happen. Eusebius, none too pleased, went back to the emperor and convinced him that Liberius was becoming a liability, right? What's that? Uh, Good pun. I'm about to be a dad, so, you know, I got to start working on these jokes. But still, Constantius proceeded to bring the pain after that. He sent a large delegation to the prefect of Rome, ordering that the pontiff be seized either secretly or by force and brought before him. So, Liberius was dragged before the emperor in Milan, Italy, but wasn't about to be intimidated into cooperating. The ensuing argument between pope and emperor, interestingly enough, was written down and survives to this day. And I'm not joking. Constantius was demanding that Liberius condemn Athanasius and submit to heresy, while Liberius was rebuking the emperor for punishing the innocent and refusing to acknowledge the confession of St. Peter, that Christ was indeed the divine Son of God. The conversation went like this. Constantius said, You alone hold out against the judgment of the whole world. He has injured all, and me above all. Not content with the murder of my eldest brother, he set Constance the previous emperor whom Constantius had killed, also against me. I should prize a victory over him more than one over Silvanus or Magnentius, two men, by the way, who had tried to overthrow the emperor. End quote. Liberius replied, Do not employ bishops whose hands are meant to bless, to revenge your own enmity. Have the bishops restored, and if they agree with the Nicene faith, let them consult as to the peace of the world, that an innocent man be not condemned. Constantius fired back, I am willing to send you back to Rome if you will join the communion of the church. Make peace and sign the condemnation. Constantius was referring to the heretical church, by the way. Liberius replied, I have already bidden farewell to Rome, at Rome to the brethren. The laws of the church are more important than residence in Rome. End quote. Now, let's pause for a second and rewind to what Constantius just said. He would consider victories over an Eastern Catholic patriarch and the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, as greater than someone who threatened his very own temporal rule. This was the 4th century, and here's a great example of the importance that not just Christianity, but also the wider world, saw in the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church and his, in his brother bishops. After this exchange in 355, Constantius had Liberius exiled, as was his wish, to Thrace for nearly two years. It was during this time that the emperor continued to harass and threaten the pope constantly with torture and execution if he didn't sign the heretical creed and condemn Athanasius. More on that in a minute. Constantius, meanwhile, appointed an antipope, Felix, in Liberius' place and expected the Roman clergy and faithful to treat him like the real deal. But the Roman Christians were no dummies, and the emperor saw that as soon as he visited the Eternal City in 357. 
The people were so upset with the emperor, the Catholic Encyclopedia recounts, that, quote, he was impressed by the prayers for the return of the pope boldly addressed to him by the noblest of the Roman ladies, whose husbands had insufficient courage for the venture, end quote. When Liberius was allowed to return to Rome, the emperor tried to convince the people that the real pope and the hashtag fake pope should rule side by side. In any case, the Romans probably rolled their eyes and drove Felix, the anti-pope, from the city for good. St. Jerome recounted that Liberius returned to Rome as a conqueror, being given a hero's welcome by the Roman faithful. Amazing. Constantius was soundly defeated in his quest to confound the Roman pontiff, and he died a few years later. A brief stint followed where the Emperor Julian reinstated paganism as the official religion of the empire, but Liberius was gifted with calm final years when Valentinian, himself a Christian, succeeded Julian before long. So Liberius died in 366, but not before constructing a very familiar basilica, originally bearing his name, but now known to us as the Basilica of St. Mary Major in Rome. In the decades and centuries that followed Liberius' death, there's been speculation and controversy about what Liberius did or didn't do during his period of exile at the hands of Constantius. Some said he finally caved in and both condemned Athanasius and signed the creed affirming Arianism, an action that, if done freely, may well call into question the legitimacy of papal infallibility, which is why we're talking about Liberius in the first place. But others maintain that Liberius was faithful and stalwart to the end, never caving in to the emperor's demands. Before we address those two claims, a quick note on papal infallibility. It does not mean, as is commonly thought, that the pope can never sin or can never have a faulty opinion. Instead, it refers to statements that the Pope makes ex cathedra, which is Latin for from the chair, and can only apply to teachings that have to do with faith and morals. Essentially, the charism of papal infallibility has a very specific set of criteria and can never apply to, say, a declaration that chocolate ice cream is better than vanilla, as dogmatic as that may be. The biggest proponents of the idea that Liberius caved to the emperor's demands are two heavyweights, St. Athanasius and St. Jerome. However, a couple things must be considered. First, we have to remember that even if he did endorse heresy, Liberius would have been under extreme duress when he did so, which would dispense him from full accountability, and then it could never possibly have bearing on papal infallibility under those circumstances. On that note, it's worth mentioning, too, that Athanasius himself was in hiding at the time, so there's a good chance he didn't even have access to the most accurate information. Jerome similarly based his information on letters that we now know to have been forgeries. Now, to speak quickly about the other side, that Liberius held fast to the truth and didn't cave in. There's arguably much stronger evidence for this latter point. Both St. Sulpicius Severus in 403 AD and Pope St. Anastasius I in 401 claim that Liberius kept his papal muscles flexed, as it were, and point to his hero's welcome in Rome as evidence. If word had spread that he'd signed a heretical creed, something Constantius would have definitely seen to it's highly unlikely Rome would have treated Liberius in such a fashion. Lastly, Liberius' behavior both before and after his capture and release lend evidence to the fact that he stood firm. After Constantius' death, Liberius was even more vigorous in his fight against Arianism and imposed strict penances on heretical bishops before allowing them back into full communion with the church. If Liberius himself had defected, wouldn't he have been the laughingstock of the church? Anyways, I, for one, am relieved that such evidence exists. For more reading on this, check out Patrick Madrid's great book, Pope Fiction. I'll paste a link to it in the show notes. To wrap up this episode, here's a quote from St. Jerome writing on the period of Liberius' reign, when the Pope was under such siege from the Roman emperor. Jerome writes, quote, 
The ship of the apostles was foundering. She was driven by the wind, her sides beaten with the waves. No hope was now left, but the Lord awoke and bade the tempest cease. The beast died, and there was calm once more, end quote. Such is the case in every age of the church, right? The sea is constantly brewing up another storm, as we're experiencing right now in the church. But we must remember that the bark of Peter, if she is indeed the church that Christ founded, is forever protected from capsizing. Anyway, that's it for this week. If you're a new listener or an old listener and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review the podca- the Popecast at iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you listen to podcasts. Even a short one review helps a great deal and ensures that more folks just like you can find and learn about the popes. Also, if you're enjoying the Popecast and want to ensure that we can keep churning these out, please visit patreon.com slash Sewell. For a buck or two an episode, you can get early access to each Popecast episode, plus access to other sweet patron-only benefits. That's patreon.com slash M-A-T-T-S-E-W-E-L-L. If you're not sure uh, if you want to become a patron yet, at least go ahead and follow us. We're, we're, we're posting stuff there all the time. Um, and then lastly, for more great papal content, check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Popecast, just at The Popecast. There we'll have daily papal quotes posts for sainted popes feast days and of course updates on new episodes if you still can't get enough of the popes be sure to check those out so we offer prayers for the soul of pope liberius and ask the intercession of those who came before and after him until next time